Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Robin Penny. Robin is the Managing Director of Penny Hydraulics, an award-winning company which designs manufactures, installs and services a wide range of market-leading lifting equipment. Uh, Robin, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, good afternoon, Scott, and good to speak to you. It, likewise, Robin, it's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves and um, we're really grateful for your time. It's so, so important in the context of what we're trying to do here at the Leaders' Council. Um, normally, at this point in the show, we dive straight into the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. However, with the ongoing COVID-19 situation as it is, I feel it is appropriate that we begin with that because it's proven to be such a huge challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But to what extent has it affected you and your business in the manufacturing industry? Well, it uh, came as a bit of a bombshell as it did to everybody. We're heavily linked to the automotive sector and to the leisure industry because mm. we provide lifting equipment for restaurants, pubs and bars, which all need servicing and making new ones, of course. And the automotive sector, by putting cranes onto small vehicles, like, uh, transit pickups, the three-and-a-half-ton market, and all that um, really took a massive nosedive at the at the onset of the COVID-19 crisis. So uh, our work was down around about 50% in a very rapid period of time, which all has to be managed and uh, you have to carry on. The uh, furlough scheme was an absolute godsend. Uh, and I'm sure that has saved many businesses. And uh, we were very, very pleased to see that come to light and it's worked very well and very efficiently uh, but from the outset we, we looked at what what can we do uh, we, there's certain things we couldn't do we couldn't be working in the leisure industry so we looked very hard at our business and all the different sectors we're in and what found out what we could do and when we um, made some decisions along those lines then who do we need to do it and how can we do it safely so mm. that that was really Rather than shutting the place down, it was finding out what, what we can do to keep, keep people going, to keep people in work, and to keep our customers satisfied, because a lot of people did carry on working. To listen to the news very often, you would think that everybody had shut down, but uh, the supermarkets were open, goods are moving, wages got paid, the lights were on, the sewage system all worked, and uh, a lot of these people, we, we've got customers in all these areas, so mm. uh, we, we had to keep going in some, some shape or form. And indeed, uh, people like Port and Down, we installed in the middle of the lockdown period at the Port and Down establishment, put a a lift in there, going to a mezzanine floor. um, Because research is one of the industries that really hasn't slowed down in in this crisis. And it's Mm. probably been a a growth sector. So uh, if you let those customers down, then they're going to go somewhere else or it's, it's going to terribly impinge on their ability to do their job. So... We were very happy to be able to keep a limited number of people working um, right throughout the lockdown period. Um, mm. To listen to the news very often, you would think that nobody was at work, which I, I think the reporting has been abysmal. And the government guidance has been pretty clear throughout, but people have perhaps chosen to read it in a manner that suits them rather than uh, what it was actually saying when you, you should go to work if you possibly good, could or, or work from home. Uh, but uh, I'm afraid a lot of people seem to think it meant stop at home, and the news was uh, very much along those lines, which uh, was disappointing. Mm, yeah, uh, I think the government's come under an awful lot of fire, hasn't it, over the last few months? And I think um, a lot of that has been sort of unfairly down to um, how guidelines have been portrayed through the uh, the media spotlight. And there are several people out there that do share that view, Robin, um, absolutely. So I can certainly see where you're coming from from uh, that point of view. 
when we think about sort of having to adapt to this new reality, you say that research has been um, one of those things that's essentially grown during this time. And indeed, innovation within businesses, businesses have had to pivot to deal with this, has been huge during this time, incredibly important and incredibly successful. But are there any things that you've learned from this experience of adapting to a whole new reality? Well, it was making the most of the time. Um, you've, you've got a bit of time here where the pressure in some ways was taken off because production was going to be down. So although it was expensive, um, we took the decision to keep all the design team on. We've got uh, a 10-strong design team, and they were able to work at home so they could work safely. We could keep some in the building, so we got uh, a, a balance with not too many people close together. But the investment we were able to make in new products uh, and redesigning some of our existing products. So we're now just bringing two new products to market that we wouldn't have been able to do actually without the lockdown period. It's mm. sort of accelerated that process. Quite an investment, but if we we could see the automotive sector was going to be depressed for some time, and in fact it was before the uh, COVID-19 situation because uh, people are a bit not sure whether to buy diesel or electric or hybrid and many people have been sitting on their hands wondering what to do. Mm. So the, the automotive sector has been a little bit on, it, on, on the back foot for some time. But we've been able to now bring two new, mar- two new products to market that we think we'll be able to sell uh, internationally, which for what we do, which is mostly bespoke, is very difficult to do internationally because you need somebody on site to measure up and sort out what the problem is um, to come up with a bespoke product. But we've now got two products which we should be able to sell largely out of a box uh, anywhere in the world, which should at least uh, fill the gap that we have from the automotive sector domestically um, by being able to sell more internationally. This is as long as the Brexit doesn't put a bit of a a stopper on things, but um, we will work around that, no doubt, when it happens. Uh, Nobody can give us too much information on that at the moment. We're, we're waiting to find out what the outcome will be, the same as everybody else. Um, but uh, we need to be there, uh, ready to uh, fill any gaps in the market. And we, we think we have with these, two, these, these new products, which we've invested in over the lockdown period. Mm. And indeed, with Brexit as well, I think we should hopefully find out uh, whether there will be a trade deal with the European Union by this month. That is, of course, the deadline that the Prime Minister and I think Michel Barnier have put on uh, the uh, the negotiations so that a deal could be ratified before the end of the year. So fingers crossed, industry will know exactly what's coming um, over the uh, the next uh, few weeks. And it won't be a double whammy of a no-deal scenario and then having to sort of cushion the impact of COVID-19 um, as well. Um, but out of every recession... Uh, comes an opportunity. And we've seen um, that in previous recessions as well. Um, it's a time where a lot of people have started businesses and gone on to uh, to succeed. And what has been apparent within um, the manufacturing and engineering industries especially is a skills shortfall for quite some time now. And there are many reasons for that. Um, but what are, is also apparent in this time is um, a lot of unemployment is going to be um, coming about as a result of this crisis. And there'll be a lot of disheartened youngsters who are disappointed at the effects of COVID-19 on the economy and its impact on their employment prospects. Um, So there will be opportunities for the industry to really cash in on that skills uh, shortfall and bring new talent into the industry. And this could be a really big opportunity, couldn't it? This could be an enormous opportunity for the engineering sector. And over many years now, engineering has been seen as a bit of a poor relation in the UK by all governments of all persuasions. Um, I was trained within the National Coal Board, so I've seen things at the sharp end with with the pit closures. And I had a very, very good uh, apprenticeship following my degree at university uh, with, with the National Coal Board. And these opportunities have become very few and far far between um, in in big companies nowadays. So the small and medium-sized enterprises like ourselves have had to pick up the the job of training the future of the engineering industry. And through people like the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre, they have a training centre in Sheffield, which is one of the best places in Europe for engineering apprentices. So we we can tap into that resource, and we have been doing over the past few years by running 
at least three new apprentices each year. And actually this year we've taken on four because um, there were so many good people on the market that we've actually taken on more than we would do normally, uh, apprentices. And they will be the future of our business. And some of these young people are absolutely superb. And other people's loss is our gain at the moment. Um, To be able to take these people on in a time of what is rising unemployment is just it's marvellous for us and, and for the people that we've been able to take on. Part of the problem with unemployment is that the, the minimum wage means that productivity has to be enhanced. If wages go up, productivity has to go up. And the only way you're going to do that is through training. And, and apprenticeship schemes are very good at the moment on the whole. And anybody who is not taking advantage of apprenticeship schemes needs to go and, uh, and see an advisor and build some sort of a relationship with a training provider to to start to using apprentices because they will be the future of their business just the same as they are with ours. And they are improving our productivity. It's it, it goes up year on year, which is what we chase really rather than turnover. Productivity has to be your aim. It is, exactly. And um, there will be so many opportunities out there to cash in on apprenticeship schemes and really close that skills gap. And any business executives who are uh, tuning in and listening to this would do very, very well, certainly, to heed that advice if uh, they haven't done already. And just for those younger people that might well be disheartened about the current situation, uh, what would you say to them, Robin, to really help them sort of pit their chins up and get them on the road to success as well? All industry will require people who are better trained than possibly they have been in the past. You need to do well at school. You at least need maths and English. And then somehow try and pick up a little bit of experience in the area that you want to work. And the only way of doing this is unfortunately knocking on doors, phoning people, sending letters and emails out to try and get a foot in the door to find out if that engineering sector is for you, because it may not be. Uh, in which case, at least if you've had a bit of experience there, you're not going to waste three years at a, a training centre doing something that isn't for you. But you need to try and get some experience. And schools are very much focused on this now and working with local employers to try and make sure that every school leaver has some sort of experience in the workplace before they leave school. And it is very important to for every young person to try and get that experience as best they can. And a lot of industry is very helpful and, and only too, mm. um, too pleased to be able, able to, to help young people on their way, even if it's only a, f- a few days. One or two days even will make a difference to some of these young people's lives, just a bit of experience. So they know what, whether it's for them and if they're going to enjoy it for the rest of their life. It's massive, isn't it? Absolutely massive. And uh, just reflecting on um, the history of uh, Penny Hydraulics very briefly, uh, Robin, um, the business was yeah. founded, of course, in the uh, the late 70s, and it's become hugely successful since then, employing 85 people, winning um, awards as well in what it does. Um, but what were some of the big influences behind your decision to go and really sort of start your own business? Well, it, it wasn't me, luckily, who had the uh, pleasure of remortgaging the house and getting the cash together. This was my father mm. um, yeah, back in the 70s, but he'd been in business before that as well. Um, it's experience. But it's, it's taking that risk with your own money, generally speaking, generally speaking with your own money, um, because you believe in yourself. And it's having that belief in yourself that you are able to do it and are able to um, provide a service, build a product, whatever it is, and do it better. Than, than somebody else and so make a living and, and it, it's that drive to continuously improve and do things better than the next person that will keep you in business you can never sit back we don't sit back here I was just very very pleased that uh, it was my father who took the plunge many years ago uh, mm-hmm. and set off in business and saw three day weeks and blackouts and um, the it was Japanese imports for an end to the business to start with and now we have Chinese imports and it will be somebody else's imports in the future. And you just have to keep adapting and moving to try and find some way of keeping ahead of the opposition and uh, whatever is going off in the world around you. Um, we've got a plan to do more work in the nuclear industry. We've got some very, very clever design engineers who are able to come up to, with solutions that are helping in the manual handling within the nuclear decommissioning sector. And there is, there's a scope for our growth 
there over the next five to ten years. Uh, uh, we will be very cautious and prudent in how that growth happens, but uh, we're targeting that area because it, that isn't influenced by what's happening in China or in, in Europe or anywhere else. That is only influenced um, by the need for this work to be done, and, and, and there's a clear need for this work to be done, and we are able to do it with some good people that, that we have. Yes, um, absolutely, yeah, because um, there will certainly be... Um an emphasis, I think, um, over the uh, the next uh, few uh, months um, and into the next few years towards uh, British business because of Brexit and also because of the impact of uh, COVID-19. And the fact that also we've seen during this time that a very small percentage of personal protective equipment even was manufactured in this country. And now it's up to something like 90%. So um, there are huge, huge changes and there will be an emphasis toward buying British in future. And that's something that the sector can really, really cash in on because we do have a fantastic manufacturing and engineering sphere in this country. I think there's more goes off in this country than most people realize. We have some of the best engineers in the world are based here. There's a reason why Boeing have their only manufacturing plant, I think, outside America is in Sheffield. Some of the best and most advanced cars in the world are designed here and built here. Again, McLaren have built a manufacturing plant in Sheffield. So there's an awful lot of very advanced engineering and research going off particularly in the Sheffield City region, uh, an excellent place to be an engineer. And it's actually the birthplace of engineering back, um, well, in the 17, late 1700s, 1800s, when the Industrial Revolution took place. Um, so it, this is the home of engineering and continues to be so. So I'm, I'm very, very proud to be, to be part of that. And I think Britain has perhaps has a bit of a warning call in these past few months that we do need to keep doing more ourselves. Mm-hmm. We've let some of the manufacturing plants in Sheffield that could make the, the forgings for nuclear nuclear reactors, the, the investment hasn't been there by successive governments. And we realize now that to be relying on foreign uh, business to build our nuclear power plants is probably not the best thing to be doing. And the quicker that reinvestment is made in this country, the better. Um, it will lead to jobs growth and uh, and hopefully sales of our products worldwide. Uh, but we need to be making our own nuclear reactors, not buying, dare I say, Chinese and Japanese ones. Very, very true indeed, um, especially in these uh, current uh, circumstances um, as well. And it's fantastic to see that businesses like uh, yourselves are continuing to be able to adapt and innovate to whatever, of course, the global market throws your way. And just thinking about the future, uh, Robin, before we do wrap things up, because I'm conscious that we are running short of time today. Um, we know that the new normal is going to be here to stay for at least a few months yet, maybe longer. But over uh, that period of time, what is it at Penny Hydraulics that you're really hoping to achieve? And indeed, where do you see the business being this time in a year? Well, we are still looking for more and more efficiency gains, both in our systems and how we manufacture our products. Uh, the reality of it is that our turnover is down now about 15%, and we've matched our workforce to suit that downturn in, in business. And I think it's probably going to stay like that for the next 12 months. We will fill the gaps, as I've mentioned before, that, that we've, we've already got with some new products that we're bringing to market at this very moment. And we will also, uh, we're winning more contracts in the nuclear sector, but that will still leave us about 10 to 15% down year on year. But our efficiency will still be where it is at least, if not better. So our profitability should not have been impacted um, over this over the, well, over the past 18 months, we get to the end of next year, we're hoping our profitability will have been maintained, even though our turnover will be down. Mm. And that is what we have to be driving for. Um, and, and we've pro- proven that with, with the training that we have in place and the improvement in our workforce year on year, this will happen. We have some excellent new apprentices that we've taken on. It's, it really is um, a, a amazing to see how, how good some of these young people are that we've been able to attract into our business. And they will be the future and they will do things better than I have done and, and some of the other people here who are now getting a little bit further on in their engineering um, their engineering lives. So if we keep bringing people into the business or better than the ones that were there, including myself, then um, we will go, go on to, to greater things in the future, I'm sure. 
can only of course serve the business in good stead if that continuous improvement and development is there and indeed it is very much what leadership is about because we're not finished products ever we're constantly learning constantly developing and constantly improving and i think it's wonderful that these new products are uh, on the horizon and going to market and should hopefully pave the way to future success for the business and i actually think it would be wonderful robin to catch up at some point in the next year and just see how some of those products are getting on and really helping change the world Yes, that's it. If we can change the world, we'll have done a bad thing. I think perhaps that's a little bit too much to expect, but we can perhaps make a little difference for some people. Mm. Uh, and if we can uh, keep a few more jobs going in the manufacturing sector in the, in the Sheffield City region, uh, I'll be very pleased with that. Exactly. It's um, small steps, of course, um, but eventually it will culminate in great big successes. I've got to say, Robin, it's um, been a real, real pleasure welcoming you onto the show today to share your views with us. And uh, most importantly, until hopefully we do get to speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. Okay, Scott, a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Thank you very much. I'd also reiterate that last message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it makes such a difference in saving lives during this time. Um, it was a pleasure for me to welcome Robin Penny, Managing Director of Penny Hydraulics, onto today's podcast. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett um, has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015 and enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. He served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself and that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up 
and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide 
and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting 
wide enough advice were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, 
but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect, where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let 
those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier 
policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.